1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune Magazine. My name is Alex Doherty, and my guest today is Amir Srinivasan. We talked about her new book, The Right to Sex. We spoke about whether it's legitimate to interrogate our sexual desires and to think about how desire is shaped by patriarchy, racism, capitalism, and heteronormativity. We also talked about why Amir takes the case of so called incels as the way into discussing those questions. And finally, we considered the anti-pornography critique of Andrea Dworkin and Catherine MacKinnon and whether their work can in any way be generative in spite of its obvious drawbacks and failings. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Overtime, Why We Need a Shorter Working Week by Kyle Lewis and Will Strong. As precarity and low pay become further embedded in the job market, at a time when work-related stress and exhaustion are endemic, it's clear that a new, radical approach to employment is required. In Overtime, Kyle Lewis and Will Strong identify a powerful and practicable response to these worrying trends, the shorter working week. A call to action in the fight for workers' rights, Overtime, Why We Need a Shorter Working Week, is out now from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Amir Srinivasan is Professor of Social and Political Theory at All Souls College, Oxford, and a contributing editor at the London Review of Books. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Harper's, and The Nation, amongst other publications. Her new book, which was the topic of our conversation, is The Right to Sex, which is out now from Bloomsbury. In the chapter titled The Right to Sex, which of course the book takes its title from as well, and which first appeared in the London Review of Books, you take up this question of of whether it's right to treat our sexual desires as, if not natural, then as outside of the purview of political critique and interrogation. And as you describe in the book, a lot of third wave feminism now shies away from any such critique and tends towards the view that Provided sex is between consenting adults, that no one's desires ought to be the subject of of criticism, often with good reason, of course, because that can obviously lead to, it runs the risk of of shaming people and and moralising and so on. And as a way into this question, you begin by discussing the case of Elliot Rodger, the notorious 22-year-old so-called incel who murdered six people and, and injured more than a dozen others in 2014. And who sought to justify and, and explain his actions on the basis that women had denied him sex due to his his appearance and, and ethnic background. And you raise the question as to whether the incel phenomenon, however appalling it is and however much we shouldn't pander to the claims of people like Elliot Roger, it does bring to attention that the troubling question of who is typically seen as sexually desirable in our culture and who isn't. So could you talk about why you decided to take the case of, of Roger as a way into discussing those issues?
0: So The reason I began with the Roger case was, well, initially what happened was, you know, I read, and I do not really recommend that anyone else do this, but, you know, I read the the very long so-called Manifesto, which is more of a memoir that he uploaded to the internet. And I read it, and it's a kind of extraordinary and very disturbing document of, you know, these compounding and compounded ideologies. Right of, of not just sexism, but also racism and, and classism, very interestingly. He's obsessed with his descent from British aristocrats, or so he says.
1: And, and he was from a relatively privileged background as well, right?
0: He was from a very wealthy background. His father was a um, very successful British filmmaker, and he was a very young, yel- wealthy and economically privileged young young man. So initially, I was just really interested in that manifesto as a kind of document of, of these compounding pathologies. But then I started becoming really interested in how feminists on the whole were talking about the Roger phenomenon. So they were all saying very true things that very much needed to be said, especially against the background of skepticism. That we found among some male commentators in the mainstream press who were saying things like, "Well, this is couldn't be a misogynistically motivated crime since Roger also killed men." Fairly ridiculous thing to say, but you know, it was something that had to be addressed. And and so feminist commentators did a very good job of showing and arguing, you know, that that Roger's killing spree was. Just one quite extreme expression of male sexual entitlement and what it looks like when that entitlement or that perceived entitlement is thwarted. But no one wanted to touch with a barge pole his claim to having been sexually discriminated against on the grounds of his race. So Roger was mixed race. He was half white, half Chinese Malaysian and his claim to have been marginalized on on account of his lack of lack of typical masculinity, right? So he was shy, he was bad at sports, or at least on his own account. And no one wanted to talk about this. And and it's of course a difficult thing to talk about, but it, it struck me, because at the same time I was I was teaching feminist theory to my undergraduates at UCL, that you know, this was the kind of thing that feminists of the second wave were really excellent at talking about to, in in a certain way, right? So someone like Catherine MacKinnon or Andrea Dworkin, we we were speaking about them before we started recording. We, you know, were completely preoccupied with the question of the political formation of desire and very interested in the question of what it would might mean to emancipate desire from political structures and political influence, and that was also a project that even. Early generations of sex positive theorists, someone like Ellen Willis, were also interested, right? They wanted to see sex and our sexual interactions as, as political phenomena, even as the sex, early sex positive theorists wanted to resist what they saw as the kind of authoritarian moralism of someone like McKinnon or Dworkin or other, you know, so called anti porn feminists. And it was interesting to me that We just didn't really have those resources available to us anymore. And part of the irony of not having those resources available to us to be able to give a political critique of desire or to answer Roger's Rogers' complaint is that the ability to have such a critique is entailed. It's a requirement of intersectionality, which we all sign up to. Right. So, if you're going to take seriously the way in which race and class interact, with, inflect, and shape gender and sexuality, you've got to take seriously phenomena like sexual racism, or the way in which disability and shape hierarchies of desirability. So, I felt like there was this. The, the Roger case was a kind of a good way of, a good way into showing this sort of tension at the heart of contemporary third wave feminism, where on one hand, we were committed to giving a kind of intersectional analysis of oppression. And at the same time, we had lost, for, for I think, understandable political reasons, some of the resources that would allow us to sustain a properly intersectional critique of desire.
1: When you were writing it, did it feel to you a pretty risky move? Because there seems to be a potentially much easier way into into that discussion. might be, for instance, to discuss women who feel perhaps unwanted and and unattractive, and and although it's rather different to the incel phenomenon, which is overwhelmingly a male thing, who also populate certain message boards and discuss the difficulties and and pain associated with not being seen as conventionally attractive in this culture, but who, in contrast to male incels, are not characterised by that Intense sense of sexual entitlement or or murderous rage, and I wonder if this makes you open to the accusation that you are saying that Elliot Rodger is, in some respects, correct, and and maybe that's not a problem, but but maybe it is.
0: It's a problem insofar as I'm misread, and I suppose there's (laughs) when you try and do certain kinds of complex, difficult thinking or writing, you you do sort of of necessity leave yourself open to certain forms of misreading. The reason I wanted to begin with, Roger. And I do, especially in the book, talk about women who identify as incels. And I think you're absolutely right that the contrast between how they think about their predicament and how incels, male incels talk, uh, is fascinating. I mean, one one notable trope that you find on female incel or what's sometimes called femcel message boards is that they point out that lots of male incels aren't really incels. They're not really involuntary celibates. They are men who are preoccupied with having sex and relationships with only a small class of high status women. So they aren't interested in having relationships with shy women or socially awkward women or women who are not stereotypically beautiful or women who aren't able-bodied, right? And this gets at to the heart of the incel phenomenon, which is that, you know, it has nothing to do really with deprivation of sex as such and has everything to do with sexual hierarchy and sexual status. But the reason to start with the Roger phenomenon is precisely to, to show anyone, I think, who is at all taken with the incel phenomenon, at all sympathetic to it, that it's actually extremely important to be able to hold two thoughts together i mean one thought is you know certain forms maybe all forms but at least certain forms of sexual hierarchy are 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 bad and pernicious but that that must not entail and in fact doesn't entail that anyone has a right to sex and so there's this kind of interesting thing where you have incels responding to a very real and problematic phenomenon, right? Sexual hierarchy, but having the precisely wrong kind of downstream response, right? Which is that they are interested in the maintaining the hierarchy. They are just despairing at their, at their place in it, right? But you have the very tiniest whisper of a feminist critique, right? And, it, and it's kind of similar to the way in which a certain kind of working class white voter, you know, take take a working class white Trump voter, is halfway to very often halfway to a a, a good left wing class critique, but then is derailed because really the the ire becomes not about class as such, but about the false perception that certain, usually racialized, other racialized groups are are doing better. Right. So I was trying to bring that out because I, I sometimes like just getting all of the complexities out on, out on the table.
1: In terms of that sexual hierarchy you described, which is clearly referring to a real thing, we're all aware that certain advantages accrue to people who are more conventionally attractive and that People from certain ethnicities are in media more or less likely to be portrayed as, as being attractive and so on. But reading some of the, the writings of people who self-describe as, as incels, and, and I'm thinking of the, of the male incels particularly, there often seems to be a, a quite, an almost rigid attachment to their iron belief in the, in the hierarchy and a tendency n- not to want to consider that things are rather more fluid than they suggest and to just see this, if you're not a certain height, for instance, as a man, you just, you know, you've got no chance, you know, there was no possibility of anything of you being in a, in a relationship and so on. I don't want you think about that.
0: No, I think that's absolutely correct as a, a bit of ethnography, <laughs> incel ethnography. I'm, I'm very much struck by that as well. So there is a profound sort of determinism and pessimism that you find within the incel subculture. In part, I think, because they... Well, in part because it offers a kind of totalizing, simple view of the world, and that can be very attractive, right? That, that, that's part of the attraction of conspiracy theories. It's elegance. But also because I think they are very much attached to a very rigid hierarchy of female attractiveness and female desirability. So precisely because they themselves are in no way kind of fluid or open about who they might <laughs> Be attracted to you because, yeah, because in no part, one else is. Right. No one else could be. And I think that's in part because these are people on the whole who are not interested in or in particularly in touch with desire as a phenomenon, right? They, or at least it's, it's, it's not really desire for forms of intimacy or communion or even like some some particular person, right? Or even some particular body, but, but rather it's a desire for status. And so I think when, you, when that is your worldview, I think it, you end up kind of approaching the sexual economy, as it were, in a very rigid way. And so you imagine that everyone else does as well.
1: Where would you want to put the question of beauty into this? Because it's clear that we all, to varying degrees, do value beauty. I mean, do you see that as being socially constructed in the same way as, for instance, the fetishization of the black male body is, for instance, or, or do you think there is a, an almost hardcore of biology that does indeed exist at, at some level? And if there is, what do we do about that, or, or how should we think about it?
0: Oof, you're starting with the hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think it's very, very difficult to speculate about. To put it simply, you know, what's natural and what's, what's nurtured or what's socialized. You know, I think you would find, I mean, if you, you know, look at, look at history and other cultures, I mean, they're, they the norms of, of, of beauty and physical desirability in both women and men vary hugely in ways that I think evolutionary psychologists are not always particularly sensitive to. They sort of think, <laughs> there's some kind of evolutionary disposition to think that angela jolie is like angelina jolie is like the you know like the fittest person i mean fittest in the reproductive sense and the darwinian sense and you know that's just not kind of accurate but at the same time i imagine one would be very hard pressed to try and identify a historical moment or 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 a, a present culture in which there weren't some norms of of beauty and physical desirability. Those two things are, of course, somewhat separate. A further question is the extent to which we should be trying or we should be hoping to, whether or not it's even possible, to eradicate all forms of kind of sexual differential desirability, right? Some of it will, you might just think, be a matter of luck, right? A matter of kind of life's lottery, and it's not tied to any structure of oppression or domination, right? So we have a very clear case, a clearly politically problematic case in, in case of sexual racism. So you're talking about the fetishization of, of black men's bodies. You can think about, you know, the particular kind of sexual downgrading of black women's bodies. So under conditions of of, of white domination, typically you have black women And their bodies as coded as sexually of lower status, which of course makes them ironically much more susceptible to sexual violence because they are seen as sexually promiscuous and therefore, you know, to use Catherine McKinnon's word, unrapeable, right? And so then paradoxically are more susceptible to rape. So that's a very, I take it, clear case where a a structure of domination, racial domination problematically shapes and flex and is, in fact, partially constituted by hierarchies of of racialized hierarchies of desirability. I mean, there's this kind of broader question we can ask, which is, you know, are non-beautiful people oppressed? Like, do they constitute an oppressed class? And, you know, I think, I mean, I don't have an answer to that question. I think you would have to think about the extent to which the discrimination faced by, you know, less beautiful people is like systemic, structural, mirrors in kind of important ways. Other forms of domination, class domination, gender domination, and so on. Um, so I, I don't, I don't have a view um, on that on that question. But it's I'm I'm not trying to suggest, and I don't think it would be very helpful to suggest that what we want is a kind of outcome egalitarianism, where you know everyone is equally attractive to everyone else. I mean, I had a professor when I was an undergrad, when uh, my first year, when we were reading Marx, who just said, you will realise that, you know, in the post-capitalist utopia, that there's still going to be heartbreak, right? <laughs> and I was like, "And I think we were pretty depressed by that. But um, th- that seems right to me, right? Like, there's much about the human drama that is not political, and that's not a political problem.
1: In the same chapter, I mean, one very interesting point you make is that it's very common for gay men to acknowledge the extent to which they're prey to making quite superficial judgments on, on appearances and giving in to, you know, what's often described as body fascism and, and so on. But that they typically view this as, as a problem specific to themselves and, and, and to the gay male community rather than also being true of, of straight people. Why do you think gay men are, are more ready to interrogate their desires or at least acknowledge them in this way or, or rather their desires being problematic?
0: Yeah, I mean, so this is something... I especially noticed after I wrote and published the original Right to Sex essay uh, in 2018 in the LRB, a lot of gay men, including a lot of my friends, but also, you know, people I I didn't know, sort of said, like, yes, (laughs) this is a problem for us. And they didn't mean simply that they themselves felt kind of sexually or discriminated against, racially or otherwise, from other gay men. They also saw themselves as problematically being agents of that discrimination and found and and were and were very anxious about it. And you know, the mere fact that Grinder had that sort of web series, What the Flip, which I discuss in the essay, and you know, where two men, two gay men switch the Grindr accounts. So in one example, a, you know, I would say a fairly average looking uh, white guy switches with um switches his account with a, a very beautiful East Asian Man and they both just kind of watch in in horror as um as as you know they engage as these other people and so uh, the the white guy with the East Asian uh, man's account is getting very little attention so much less attention than he's used to getting and then when he does get attention it's it's from people who are very keen to like fetishize him and who like announce themselves as. Fetishizers of East Asian men. And the East Asian guy is just bowled over in a kind of tragic way by the amount of tension he, attention he gets when he is using the account of the white guy. So the very existence of this show, I think, is itself a thematization of this question that exists in lots of gay male communities. Like, are we too judgy? Are we too, you know, quote unquote body fascist? Are we sexually racist? And But I think in one sense, gay men are just being too hard on themselves because these patterns just play out just as much among straight dating cultures, if not more so. And I, so I think it's, I think it's interesting because I think part of what you're seeing there is a kind of, you know, the long legacy of the gay rights struggle, right? Which, comes with the very important reminder that sexuality and sex are, are political things as much as they're just personal things. And I think that that plays a much larger role in gay consciousness than straight consciousness on the whole.
1: If we did want to, oh, I say we, what do I mean by we? Um, <laughs> if, um, if one, uh, you know, if, if, if one or if people on the left, say, for instance, or as or, or part of some other community wanted to embark on, on the project of trying to reconfigure their desires. What does that look like to you? Because I think part of the, you know, I found myself when reading the book agreeing with with a great deal of it, but then a certain kind of pessimism intrudes. And it's it's just that thing of, well, these are the desires that we're all stuck with in this world. We have one life in, the, in which to live. And, and often it can perhaps seem more realistic to accept our desires as they are and trying to live with them as best we can.
0: Yeah, so I'm very sympathetic to that thought, and I've heard it many times. I should just maybe say for the record, I've also heard the opposite thought many times, usually, however, from queer people. So I just had a really extraordinary email from a young gay man who was was talking about, you know, his pattern of, of, of dating and how he had been in a relationship with someone, you know, he's he's been in relationships with people who are very sort of stereotypically, you know, attractive and high status in, in, in his gay male community, right, who are kind of, quote, unquote, straight passing, but he's also dated someone who's, who's less stereotypically attractive. And in the latter case, he found himself kind of actively resisting <laughs> the political narrative, right, like the, the kind of social, the social script, which told him that this person he was with was, was, was not really worthy of his sexual and amorous Appreciation. And yet he found himself genuinely desiring in sort of defiance of those politics. But it, it involves some amount of active work. So what he's describing there, and I've had this described to me many times, isn't a process of trying to force your desire into a particular shape, but notice, you know, a, a certain kind of um, <laughs> politically correct shape, but rather Noticing that actually you, you have a certain set of affinities or attractions or desires that already don't, might already sort of not fit into the correct shape and allowing those desires to grow and be validated, avowing them rather than disavowing them in a way that can kind of contradict what politics tells you you should avow.
1: So not necessarily so much about creating new desires, but recognising that there are desires which are almost pushed under by the prevailing culture, which tells you, well, those aren't the right desires or that's not what you should be pursuing and continually telling you to pursue other things.
0: Yeah, exactly. And this is why I think there is this kind of... I mean, this is why this sort of practice is has been central to queer life, right? <laughs> because under heteronormativity, right, you aren't supposed to have queer desires and it's very easy to internalize forms of that kind of normativity in the form of stigma right and there so there has to be a kind of active practice of like letting your desire be free be free of what politics would make of it now i'm not trying to say that this is just true for everyone or that this project would look the same for everyone and i'm certainly not trying to say that yeah this is what we should spend all of our time doing or that we should, you know, all get involved in a certain kind of Maoist practice of interrog, you know, <laughs> interrogating <laughs> each other and like self-flagellating on each other. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, not least because I think it's, um, you know, politically really distracting, probably psychologically scarring and, 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 and can end up sort of taking <laughs> can end up being a form of sort of politics that, well, or a a form of kind of quasi-political practice that can supplant and replace more material, real forms of political engagement. But that said, you know, I mean, the reason that feminists of the second wave thought about things like separatism, communal child-rearing, political lesbianism, you know, all these non-normative forms of Engaging with each other in daily life was because they were trying to distance themselves from an old left that didn't see any room for prefigurative politics, right? That would say, well, you know, yes, you're going to have a voice once the revolution comes. You know, this work will be like more fairly, will be more fairly uh, distributed once the revolution comes. But right now, we're going to have to have these, you know, quite oppressive and, and dominating practices that we can think about all this stuff later. So I think there's there's a balance to be struck in any kind of left politics between, you know, wanting to do some a certain amount of prefiguration, right? Because I think politics requires that we change as well, on one hand, and, and then on the other, making sure that it doesn't become a a cannibalizing project.
1: You go into this in the book that as well as we might want to question our, our desires in terms of conventional attractiveness or, or particular ethnicities, say. But you also argue that we might find in this process of trying to sort of uncover other other desires that we're all rather more queer than we believe ourselves to be. And, and that you know somebody who might consider themselves to be very straight, for instance, might, through that process, discover that actually they have desires towards people of the same sex and so on. Is, is that a correct reading?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's just historically what has happened. I mean, it's certainly, you know, so I mean, the discussion about, for example, political lesbianism in in feminist groups in the UK and the US um, in the 70s is is sometimes a bit reductive because there's a sharp distinction drawn between political lesbianism and real lesbianism, where political lesbianism is a, a form of political practice. Uh, voluntary practice that women engage in.
1: Intentional with. act.
0: Yeah. That women engage in, in order to like, as a matter of, of solidarity and out of a will to separate themselves from the, you know, so-called enemy men. Um, but, but you know, it was also a little bit more complicated than that because what, one thing you had were women just gathering together and spending a lot of time with each other in ways that they just hadn't before, which I think, and which was, um, Thrilling and exciting, um, and produced, I think, lots of inchoate forms of desire. And I think for some of these women, it was an open question whether they might, in fact, be in some sense attracted to women. So, you know, which puts pressure on a kind of neat distinction between, and I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, everyone is, is in some sense gay or, or queer or anything like that, but it's certainly the case that if you just look at the history, of, you know, queer life, people are sometimes taken by surprise.
1: Yeah. And it appears to be a thing that younger people today are more likely to self-describe as as bisexual than used to be the case, I believe.
0: So much more likely.
1: In another chapter of the book on pornography, you describe your experience of putting the the radical feminist critique of porn, which is most closely associated with Andrea Dworkin and, and Catherine McKinnon, who you've mentioned already, actually. To your students at Oxford, and you describe how they were far more receptive to that position than you imagined they would be, even if they have no truck with attempts to legislate against porn, which Andrea Dworkin and McKinnon were involved in 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 a certain way. I personally found this pretty interesting because I was someone who in the late 90s was reading a lot of Dworkin and McKinnon and and people like Sheila Jeffries in the UK and, and Robert Jensen in the US, who's a bit younger but certainly inspired by that radical feminist position. And I was at the time persuaded by a lot of it. And, and then I started reading third wave feminists who were rebutting that position. And I never really returned to Dawkins and those other writers and didn't particularly feel like there was a lot to salvage from their work. So could you talk about your own relationship to those thinkers and, and how you found yourself taking up their work, albeit with plenty of, of caveats and criticism?
0: So the anti-porn aspect of McKinnon and Dworkin's work has never been particularly interesting to me, or it's something that, if you work in a kind of feminist philosophical tradition, you absolutely have to engage with, because debates about, you know, whether porn is is speech or what kind of speech act it might be are, are very central to the last few decades of debate within feminist philosophy. So I'm much more interested, you know, on the whole, on in other parts of, of McKinnon and Dworkin's work. In particular, I think McKinnon's account of, of the state and state power is something that's very much still worth returning to, even if, again, I disagree with her on those things. So I ended up having, because I was teaching a, a course on kind of feminist theory and feminism and philosophy more broadly, this was actually at UCL where I started teaching, not Oxford, you know it was it was it was basically mandatory that we would do a week on um the porn debates and how they've played out how they've had this kind of second life within within philosophy through the work of people like Ray Langton Jenny Soul Les Green and so on but i wasn't really expecting my students to be at all excited about it and i thought they would find the anti porn stuff in particular just very not even reactionary i thought they would just find it kind of prudish and passé
1: Their scene is very unfashionable. That's kind of my impression of how people think of Dawkins and McKinnon today.
0: Yeah, exactly. So they would find it unfashionable. And they would also just find it totally out of step with the contemporary reality of pornography, which is internet porn, which is a phenomenon that comes well after all of the the high meridian of, of the porn debates. But, you know, the opposite thing happened. They were, they were just kind of riveted by McKinnon and Dworkin's anti-porn writing. I mean, in part, I think it's because uh, McKinnon and Dworkin are both in, in different ways, just very powerful writers. And I think students are just very often bowled over by, by the, the power and the imaginativeness of their style and i do think that's a reason that they they are worth returning to but they were also quite persuaded i think by the arguments and in particular what resonated with them was this idea that you have in mckinnon especially according to which pornography is a sort of ideological training ground or it it even more specifically that pornography kind of teaches people what sex is right? It sort of establishes the normative truths about sex and it tells you how to have sex. It has this sort of quasi-pedagogical function. And I think this is the thought that really resonated with them. They had, on the whole, my students have less than zero time for arguments about legislating against pornography. And not only because they think Intuitively, that, you know, in, the internet can't be contained. And I think that's, that's, that's right. I mean, you, you would need to Im- invest a, a vast amount of state resources to, to limit internet porn. But also, more importantly, my students are just, I think, absolutely correctly, very skeptical about the regulation and of, of sex work in all its forms, right? Because they're very aware, in part because I make them read, you know, Mac and Molly Smith's Revolting Prostitutes. And they're very aware that such legislative attempts invariably harm the worst off women, the, the women who are disproportionately drawn to doing sex work. So that's you know the major caveat. But they, they like the diagnosis, they like the descriptive picture, right? They seem to think that somehow McKinnon's account, Dworkin's account, gets the phenomenology right for them.
1: I mean, maybe this is. I worry that this is a patronizing point, and I think partly is responding to my own attraction to that work when I was a bit younger, that I wonder if there is a tendency perhaps for younger people to be attracted to a certain kind of moralising certitude, and particularly around not just porn but but media as well, to see a a very A to B effect on people's behaviour, when it may be the case that even watching overtly misogynistic pornography doesn't necessarily have very straightforward consequences on how people, and I suppose particularly men, Act in the world. And, and you do talk about some of the complexity around porn's possible effects, which are heavily contested.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think to, to be very clear, it's not that my students, I think, buy the picture, which is very important to someone like McKinnon and Dworkin, according to which pornography serves as a kind of ideological training ground for misogyny as such. They don't think of porn as the linchpin of patriarchy. They don't think that porn is how people learn to be, you know, in general, kind of sexually violent or (laughs) to not pay women the same amount as men and, you know, and so on. Like, that's not their account. What they find specifically attractive is the thought that the way they have sex has been taught to them by porn. That's the thing. And I think the reason they find that compelling, I think, is because... So many of them had their first sexual experiences mediated by internet porn. I'm not, I don't mean at the age of 16. I mean at like the age of 10, right? I mean, they are of a generation who came of age sexually and who with pornography in a way that no other generation did. And so what they feel, I think what, what they're attracted to is, is not the thought that, oh, you know, if you watch porn kind of mainstream standard, male domination female subordination porn what happens is you go out and and dominate women or as a woman you act subordinate i think they they think something kind of narrower but in a way more poignant which is like this is how they they have sex or this is how they feel they ought to have sex and this is how they relate to each other sexually as sexual beings and they feel like other possible ways of having sex are sort of closed down i mean just a point that you know to give you an example of this I think I quote this in the book. I have a student who said who said and she, she was a woman, but you know, if if it weren't for porn, how would we all know how to have sex? And they were all nodding. Right. And I never felt older because I, I was like, <laughs> I was like, let me tell you about like the olden days where, you know, where like people figured out how to have sex with each other. And of course, there's, um, there are movies, there's like media, there's, uh, there are like your friends, there's all sorts of stuff. But there was also just a huge amount of like figuring it out with other people. And I, did, I think that for them, that isn't actually how sex goes anymore. Sex happens, is much more scripted and it's sort of much more normatively, com- normatively confined. So I don't think they're buying into this picture on which you know, porn is like the linchpin of patriarchy. What they're buying into is, a, is this thought that porn is teaching them how to have sex, and they don't, they don't particularly like it.
1: Is part of their scepticism of the whole package of, of radical feminism also its focus on, on the male-female binary as the sole axis, or the, or the most important axis, rather, of, of oppression? Because I'm wondering how their view of capitalism fits into this.
0: Well, it's sort of hard to tell what my students come in thinking versus what they hopefully go out thinking after I've taught them. I think you can only have that view of oppression and of women's oppression if you read a very narrow segment of, you know, second wave radical feminism. But, you know, if what you're also reading is Angela Davis and Sylvia Federici and Shulamith Firestone, you know, I'm, I'm picking out text from approximately the same time. I mean even Valerie Solanas, right? I mean you just cannot come out with the view that all that matters to women's oppression or even what fundamentally matters most is is the sex division between women and men. So class plays a huge role for them or at least I hope it does.
1: Yeah, I'm wondering about whether part of the appeal of the anti-porn position in the sort of 80s and the 90s was to do with a pessimism in terms of other political projects, you know, socialism was certainly by the 1990s, was regarded, obviously, as an embarrassingly impossible project and, and one that was only very naive people would even associate with. And perhaps the fact of that no longer being the case changes the discussion around that.
0: I mean, you see, I mean, I think the the rise of anti-porn feminism, well, I think it's important to see how anti-porn feminism itself changes in that period. All right. So, you know, anti-porn feminism or protest against pornography is very much a part of the very beginning of the women's liberation movement from the late 60s, early 70s onwards. But it just takes a different form. What you have are boycotts, often boycotts of and protests against left-wing indie magazines who published a huge amount of pornography, basically because, I mean, this is a small bit of history, but record companies under basically under American government pressure stopped advertising in like left-wing indie magazines, and so they had to start publishing pornography instead to make money. And so, you know, feminists feeling once again betrayed by, you know, their so supposed male left comrades are, you know, fighting out with them, but not in a way that invokes any state power. Right? That's in fact deeply anti-authoritarian, deeply radical. And that critique is understood as part of a much larger critique where they're thinking about universal Childcare, not necessarily supplied by the state about, you know, rape is a revolutionary issue, but not one that's going to find its solution in more men in prisons, right? I mean, the, the, you have a deep skepticism about state power, even as you're interested in questions like rape, pornography, that will then later be, become central to a very kind of state-centric carceral feminism. So it's really interesting to to see the way in which discourse around things like pornography and rape themselves shift. So it's not so much that, oh, we, we sort of give up on, you know, socialist feminist possibilities and then shift our attention to sexual forms of kind of sexual violence that can be addressed by the state. It's like, no, those interests were always there, but how we address them uh, changes. I think though, precisely because of some of the forces you were talking about, the kind of general demise of socialist possibilities, but also I think because of a sense of the availability of state power. I think it becomes. You know, you you have to actively resist it. And it's not enough for just some of you to resist it, like you all have to resist it, because the moment certain feminists get into bed with the state and the carceral state, then they become the most powerful feminists. And it doesn't matter if someone like Silvia Federici is or Angela Davis are there all along on the sidelines, offering a different vision of gender justice.
1: Going back to what your students said about porn and how it closes off other ways of having sex, perhaps did you get a sense from them of what they felt was being closed off? You know how they envisaged, if at all, how sex might be different under under different conditions.
0: I mean, not in any kind of specificity. I mean, I think generally they they'd like it to be sort of more egalitarian across the gender line, in particular. But they're not only talking about straight sex, right? So they're also, I think, often disturbed by mainstream gay porn and the way it establishes a, a script very often borrowed from straight porn that they see as, you know I mean
1: top, tops and bottoms. Well,
0: see I don't want to. I don't want to say that actually because I think as <laughs> I, I think that is itself, I mean to, to kind of elide sort of the top bottom narrative you know that that distinction with a different distinction which is dominant subordinate. I think, I think is, or subject-object is itself problematic, right? And I think a lot of bottom men will tell you that, right? So I wouldn't want to resist that. But yeah, I mean, top-bottom can act as a kind of shorthand for gendered power asymmetry. That's not fluid. It's not like my students, I, I mean, now I'm getting into kind of the weeds and speculating here, right? we don't, you know, but, you know, I don't, I, my sense is that they, they're very open. I mean, they have a lot of time, for example, for BDSM. So they're very interested in BDSM practices and the way in which they think that breaks from mainstream scripts, right? They, they're very interested in that kind of mutual pursuit of pleasure, the certain practices of not just like consent, but about planning and openness and candidness. So that's that's the kind of thing that. So I, a lot of them have written papers for me, for example, on you know BDSM as as this other kind of set this this you know a a sexual culture culture that offers a real alternative to what they see as the script that they often act out so they're not like vanilla they're not into they're not interested in like vanilla (laughs) sex if that's what you were kind of asking
1: yeah no that's very interesting because i I was i was thinking about reading robert jensen in particular and and you do get a sense from him that there's a kind of there's a right way and a wrong way to have sex and the the right way is characterized by emotional connection and reciprocity and love and obviously not to say there's anything wrong with those things but it doesn't seem to reckon with the extent to which everyone is perverse in various ways and, and the extent to which power dynamics are to some extent sort of encoded into our sexuality from a, an early age and aren't simply the consequence of a hierarchy out in the adult world or, or so to speak.
0: I mean this raises a major area of concern for me which is the way in which like the notion of affirmative consent is often unpacked Right. So you'll have on university campuses, you know, new students coming in and they're told that, you know, the sex they need to have has to not just be consensual, but it's got to be like, Sober and wanted and mutual and respect respectful and reciprocal and warm. <laughs> you know, I mean, they stop. They, highly they, boring. You know, they, yeah, but they stop. <laughs> but it doesn't have to be. But like, I mean, wh- but they stop short of saying like loving, right? And I just and I and I do despair because I think there is something deeply norm. Core and queerphobic about that picture, right? But I also don't... I want to resist the kind of Laura Kipnis line according to which all that those people are getting at, people who are worried about campus sexual ethics, all that they're worried about is sort of, you know, regretted sex, drunk and awkward sex of the kind that everyone has. Because that is to miss the way in which, like, those drunk and awkward encounters are often reshaped by not just... <laughs> all of the uncertainties and casualties of youthful exploration but are shaped by by quite rigid gender norms. So there's got to be a way of talking about that like holding these two thoughts together.
1: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune Magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.